Hello, 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 and welcome back to The Straight Shot. Uh, today it's just me. I'm your host, as always, Fiona Max School. Um, thank you very much for Mr. Check. The last time for that recording, that was an absolutely fantastic episode, one of my favourites so far. Uh, I think, well, I hope I'm going to have him back on the show. Very educational. Uh, he is, as I said, one of my more academic friends and a very, very good educator. Uh, as I said in the descriptor of the last episode, uh, we were I used to hang around as kids and uh, since we, I was about six or seven or something like that and uh, I would throw teenagers and whatever but then when it came to college I went away to sea very very quickly I was gone to sea by the age of uh, 18, 19 I think he hung around Ireland for another little while before he went off on his uh, foreign endeavours off to America and Canada and he was in England as well for a while he's been uh, travelling around as well I think he's in Bosnia or something as well I'll have to ask him the next time but um uh, yeah, very, very much enjoyed last week and I it was quite an eye-opener on a few things and it's a topic of conversation, very topical, uh, especially the, the today is the 5th of November at the time of recording, so I'm sure everyone's looking at the the, the election polls and whatnot. But sure, look, in any case, we shall um, push on. A uh, bit of housekeeping, as always. Uh, I'm on Instagram, Film School, although I'm not there that much anymore. I really have to get on top of that. It's uh, I've been lagging in my Instagram, my free uh, social media, and me. Uh, you kind of have to do it, I suppose. Uh, I'm on Reddit, the Film School. I'm also on YouTube. I'm hopefully going to be post- posting up pictures of my boy Jag, the cat. Um, also, I have some videos there of some stone carving I've been doing. I was carving a bit of, I think it's, I don't know, I, th- I don't know. I'm not a geologist. I think the stone I was carving was maybe a bit of uh, lime or maybe even granite or something. And I was finding some iron, iron, I-R-O-N. I can't say that word. It's a very, very difficult word for me to say. Uh, but if essentially, my the, the stone appeared as if it was bleeding this bright orange red uh, stuff started leaking out of it and you know, that was rather interesting and I posted it in our geology and discovered it was uh, iron ferritide or something anyway very interesting I can't remember the word very long words I'm, very, I'm not the best with long words but sure look everyone has their weakness I suppose um, so yeah Reddit YouTube Instagram uh, I'm on fucking Twitter as well well by name I'm not really I'm not active there at all I think uh, Anchor the app I'm using for recording posts uh, the posts on Twitter the the podcast but sure look if you're not active there there's no one going to follow you and I'm not active there so there's no one following me so sure look we'll have to get on to that um, so anyway <coughs> oh, excuse me. pardon me no chrono <laughs> uh, today I'm recording in my room which is unusual normally I like recording elsewhere I, I kind of like to keep my room for sleeping if I can uh, but sure, like I said, I do it today. I'm currently drinking out of a new utensil. I got one of those steel kind of water canister things. I was sick of plastic bottles and whatever. And, uh, you know, it's grand. You know, take a sip of water here. It's grand, like. But I prefer the old pint glass. I don't know. This this thing, the steel canister with the vacuum thing and heat retention and all. It's grand, but... It's a little bit short of 500 ml, I'd say, and I com- I'm constantly refilling it. I absolutely love water, as I said before. But uh, if you hear a little metal ting every so often, that's, uh, well, that's what it is. Uh, I'm not wearing full metal plate armor and banging things off me, although that would be cool. I would enjoy that. I might do that someday, but uh, 
Uh, <laughs> you never know. Um, also, I did a photo shoot just before the lockdown, which is a bit of crack. Uh, that's what the picture is. Uh, <laughs> it looks ridiculous, but I absolutely love it. Uh, so anyway, um, something I mentioned in episode number five uh, when I was discussing the uh, process, the academic process for becoming a deck officer, uh, I left a mathematical, spherical, trigonometrical question. Um, now, I actually, this is my second time recording this podcast. The one I did with Mr. Check the last day was uh, uh, one I'd, I've done in between. That's why, hence the big gap. And I, when answering this question, I got the answer right. But the, the the explanation for the answer was I kind of tripped myself up and I got confused and said a couple of wrong things. It's been so long now since I've been uh, involved in or even thought about navigational stuff or spherical trig. Uh, it's easy to trip yourself up. Uh, the question was something along the lines of you're at the equator and you travel 100 miles uh, east and 100 miles north and 100 miles west and 100 miles south. Where would you end up? And... Uh, I was talking to a friend of mine about it, about that very same question. He says, look, yeah, that's that's fair enough. But the way he remembered this phrase in class, I think it makes it a bit more clear. So I'm going to tell you again the question, but I'm going to phrase it slightly differently. And I'm going to give you the answer and then I'm going to tell you why the answer is like this as best as I can. Uh, hopefully I don't make a bollocks of it. So again, you're standing at the equator. And instead of going east, we'll go north first, right? So we'll go north, we'll go east we'll go south and we'll go west, each time 100 nautical miles. And what you will have, and I remember the question was, would you end up before, after, or whatever? The best way to describe the answer is you will generate an incomplete square. So you'll fall short of it. Uh, so you've gone 100 miles north, 100 miles east, 100 miles south, and 100 miles west. You will generate an incomplete square. And what's happening there, even though you're traveling 100 miles each time, it's the effect of the nautical mile on a spherical object, right? So to talk about the, today's, I suppose, I'm going to talk about two people today. One of them is going to be Mercator. Uh, Genie, what's his first, his first name is like this kind of crazy name. Uh, oh, Genie, Mac, I had it, I had it. Uh, oh, yeah, it's like Gerardus. G-E-R-A-D-U-S, Gerardus Mercator. He was born like ages ago, <laughs> 1512 to 1594. I actually, I actually have my notes today because I'm in my house. I haven't gone traveling. And uh, he was born from the county of Flanders, uh, which is in the room, Belgium and all that. Uh, and uh, he, you know, he's an interesting guy. He was way back in the day. His main thing was making globes and instrumentation and scientific instruments. Uh, he was a very good cartographer, you know, a maker of maps. He, um, well, obviously we're going to be talking, well, you, you many would have heard of Mercator's projection map. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, what else? Uh, we'll just talk about a few of the other things he's done before that. He was oh, sorry, from Netherlands School of Cartography. Uh, and he was a fantastic engraver, calligrapher. He was mad into the old theology, philosophy and history, mathematics and geomagnetism. Geomagnetism being the magnetic effect and, you know, uh, that the Earth has in its surrounding atmosphere. But um, uh, a little bit about the guy. I mean, the, his interest in theology, I think, got him a bit of trouble because the Spanish Inquisition was around at the time and he was hanging around, hanging around with some Lutherans, I think. 
or some lads who knew some Lutherans in the Spanish Inquisition that was enough for them but uh, he was friendly with some bishop and I think the, he was locked up for nine months like it was serious business and uh, he um, he got let go anyway and he kind of fucked off out of Flanders and uh, a bit like the black and tans I suppose <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, but so yeah that uh, you know that's a little bit about Mercator I mean by all means look him up he's a very interesting read he, he's one of the the greats in history the ones that can kind of get lost a bit by the wayside but um, so to answer the question that I just mentioned there I'm going to have to talk a little bit about Mercator's projection and how it works and so what Mercator did was he knew the earth was round obviously um, well some people don't think it App- apparently people who believe that the who know that the earth is spherical are called ballers b-a-l-l-e-r-s so yeah i'm a baller right i'm okay with that i i've, I've good solid testicles so does my cat we're, we're two entities with good good testicles i'm very proud of my balls and i'm very proud to be a baller <laughs> back to this nonsense again <laughs> But um, so I, I I actually think I discussed Mercator very briefly in the first podcast uh, and the process by which he managed to generate Mercator's projection. And um, I think his big money maker back in the day, what he made his most money off of was making globes, uh, you know, globes of the world. And they're still very beautiful. I mean, I love, I don't have any globes. I have a kind of a novelty one that holds whiskey, but it's made of plastic, so I don't put whiskey in it. Uh, the whiskey would only just taste like plastic, but it's a nice thing to have up on top of the, up on top of the, the mantel piece there. And, um, you know, I, I really love those ones that you can kind of open them up in half and you have your drinks cabinets inside. I think that's really, really classy. Might get one of those one day if I can, but uh, yeah. So Mercator, his, his main money, his main money maker was making these wonderful globes, and he had a very, very fine eye for small things and whatnot. And um, so, but a globe isn't exactly what you need as a navigator. I mean, like it's good as a general synopsis about what's going on, but you need a far higher, greater level of accuracy if you're going to be navigating in and near the, the coast and coming in and out of harbour and long transits and all this, that and the other. So he spent a lot of time trying to figure out how the hell am I going to get, uh, you know, a, a sphere onto a 2D plane, you know, and that is a tricky endeavour. And there was a lot of attempts. Uh, I can't remember any of their names now, but there there was, uh, again, I can research this to greater detail on another time, but for now we'll scoot along. It was, it was a big problem. And so he kind of came up with a pretty ingenious idea. Um, he imagined uh, one of his globes that he was after making, right? And again, I mentioned this in the first podcast, if I remember, but just to cover it again, he imagined he uh, had one of his globes and but this one was special. It was imaginary. OK, and it was inflatable, this imaginary globe. And um, he put it into a sphere or sorry, he put it into a cylinder of equal diameter to this globe. And then he imagined that he was expanding the globe inside the cylinder and that the paint that was kind of describing the coastlines on this globe was always wet and as he inflated 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 this globe inside the cylinder obviously uh, the diameter couldn't increase the radius couldn't increase increase and so like a balloon if you, you can well imagine blowing up a balloon inside a, a, a cylinder it's going to travel longitudinally if it can't expand out it's going to travel along the only path it can take 
And uh, so that's what he did. And he imagined as this, uh, you know, balloon or globe was being inflated, it was leaving an imprint of the coastline onto the 2D surface of the inside of the cylinder, you see. And uh, as you can well imagine, you, you've all seen a balloon. I mean, like if you semi-inflate a balloon and draw something on it and then continue to inflate it more, that the picture you've drawn will distort and stretch less so towards the equator and more so towards the poles in this case, as you can well imagine. And so he inflated, 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 and then kind of with a bit of mind magic, um, <laughs> which you kind of need with imagination, but uh, essentially then he imagined then that balloon deflating, taking it out of the cylinder, cutting the cylinder down the international date line at 180 degrees east or west, it's the same thing. And, um, you know, there you had a 2D map of a cylinder, which is very, very clever, but it left him with a fierce problem, which was the the, the stretching effect, like, you know, because it just really distorts things. And to give you uh, an idea as to how much this can be distorted, if you take Russia, uh, the eastern to westernmost extremities of Russia, so like let's say St. Petersburg to Vladivostok, you know, I, t- I think they're the most easterly and westerly cities. And if you bring it down towards the equator, it fits rather neatly in the eastern to westernmost extremities of Africa. So, I mean, that really kind of gives an impression because if you're looking at a map up on the wall, a chart you have up on the wall, which I do in my kitchen, I have a map of the world up on the up on the kitchen wall. It's a, I think it's a wonderful thing uh, just to look at all the different countries in the world and it's a laminated one and I have a whiteboard marker. And when it, Well, okay, it's locked down now so friends aren't coming over but when things were normal and not COVID nights, uh, friends coming over and you're able to draw on the board and point out where you've been and, you know, it's it's a nice thing to have, really. But it really puts things in perspective, especially if you're seeing places in the news, Myanmar or something like that. Oh, excuse me, tasting water, and uh, fried egg and toast is what I had for lunch earlier. I haven't had my dinner yet, but I had a fried egg on toast uh, with butter and ketchup. And I tell you now, lads, a bit of a secret: put Cajun over a fried egg. Mm. Mm-mm-mm. Cajun and fried egg is just I don't know what took me oh hitting the microphone in my excitement don't know what possessed me ages ago to put Cajun on my fried egg but it is absolutely lush little Fionmax school top tip there for you know lads so Russia fits into Africa and you know and if you buy those Eason's versions of uh, world maps that you know that gives you an impression as to how much the, the expansion can occur and um so that's all well and good. Uh, you can adjust for it. There is a ratio. I can't remember what it is now, but there, like you know, it is a quantifiable, mathematically speaking, quantifiable uh, expansion that you can adjust for accordingly. Because if you are, say, approaching, you you set sail from somewhere somewhere equatorial in the Caribbean, Caribbean, and you're heading towards, say, Ireland. Well, then. There is, or even in Norway, obviously, when you get to Norway, the the stretch just stretches going to have a far more pronounced effect, and you can adjust for that rather neatly by calculating out um, with maths the, <laughs> the rate of expansion, and uh, when you're kind of zooming in on a port or a certain sense uh, or a certain part of the coastline, say the. The lines of latitude and long the lines of latitude are adjusted accordingly, and you're taking your ranges, your distances uh, from 
the lines of latitude. This is where you're measuring your, your nautical mile. Now, to discuss briefly before we go on on this point, because I, I might be confusing people already. I know it can be a bit jiggery-pokery, but the nautical mile is measured at 45 degrees north or south, depending. Uh, it doesn't matter. And to, fig- to, to realise what a nautical mile is, you have to realise what a degree is when you're talking about uh, the, the, the earth, the globe, the position. You, you've heard of GPS positions, 52 degrees north, uh, 37, you know, so, so 52 degrees, 37 minutes north, 008 degrees, 17 minutes west. Okay, that's a GPS position that you that everyone's seen. You've heard it in movies, you know, whatever else. You've seen it on your own uh, GPS and whatnot. And uh, in a degree, there's 60 minutes. Okay, and each minute is a mile. And there's obviously 60 seconds in a minute, but we generally don't work in seconds. We do decimals of minutes. Uh, and a decimal of a minute is a tenth of a mile. And if you go to 45 degrees north the latitude 45 degrees north and you measure one minute there that is 1.15 miles on land and that's what a nautical mile is 1.15 miles also it's uh one nautical mile equates to 1.852 if i remember correctly yeah 1.852 kilometers 1852 meters so that's where the nautical mile comes from. 45 degrees north or south, you measure a minute, and that's the average of the nautical mile because clearly if you go up to the North Pole, uh, you know, you could walk 10 steps uh, and you could transverse a lot of longitude. And if you go, obviously, to the equator, 10 steps is a pittance. So 90 degrees is the poles and zero is the equator. So they go to 45 degrees a measure a minute there. Um, now, where the things get a little bit awkward, and I'm going to try to do this verbally, and if you do get confused, I am terribly sorry. Um, I know about it, but I, I don't know it well enough to describe it verbally without the visual aids, I suppose, without drawings and pens and paper and whatnot, but I'll give it a go. And I'm sure there'll be some YouTube channel or YouTube episode you can find somewhere, uh, some some Indian guy describe it. I mean, those Indian guys are fantastic on the YouTube. They Anything you want to find out, there'll be some Indian guy kind of describing it to you. They're really, really great people, the Indians. And um, so what we're dealing with with this mathematical question is a thing called D-lat and D-long, difference in latitude and difference in longitude. Uh, for example, if you want to find the D-lat between 20 degrees north and 50 degrees north, well, you just take 20 from 50. That's 30 degrees is the D-lat. But if you're 20 degrees south and you want to find the D-lat between 20 south and 50 north, well, then you're adding it, obviously. you know, So that's 70 degrees D-lat. D-lat means D-lat, difference in latitude. And it's the same thing with longitude. If you are, you know, 10 degrees east and you want to go 40 degrees east, well, then your D difference in longitude, D long, is 30. If you're 10 degrees west and you want to go 40 degrees east, well, then your D long is 50. So it's the it, it, it's a little bit awkward, but once you can kind of get your head around it, it makes an awful lot of sense. You, you know, um, that's just the way a, 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 a sphere works, you know, when it's... Uh, gridded off into the way we have it today with lats and lo- latitudes and longitudes and um, the nautical mile as I said is measured to 45 degrees and uh, if you were to tie distances to 
uh, lines of longitude and whatnot, you're going to have problems, as I said, because when you go to the North Pole, three or four steps could take you vast difference. You know, it could take you like 30 or 40 degrees, the longitude, the long. And obviously that that's not workable. Like, and, you know, if you're going off the long solely for distances, when you go to the equator, it's not going to work either because the the distances are just so much greater. So the nautical mile stays the same, but your D-long, the, the effect that the nautical mile has on your difference in longitude changes drastically. That's the best way I can put it, I think. And I might be, I don't think I'm after getting that wrong, but, I, you know, I, 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 don't, <laughs> I don't trust myself, I suppose. <laughs> but um, so when you're going along the equator or when you're going up north from the equator, your D-lash is changing by a, a hundred miles. Okay, so no you've gone up to a more northern latitude and automatically your longitudinal your, your longitudinal measurements have shortened right because those circles going through the poles no matter which way you go uh, as long as a circle is going through both poles that's a great circle the equator is a great circle as well a circle that describes the maximum uh, circumference of uh, the sphere you will be decreasing your d long but the nautical mile stays the same and so when you go north things are a bit tighter you then go east and things don't change you come back down to a greater uh, distance between uh, lines of longitude and that's why you won't make you will never reach your starting point uh, if you when you go back west then so best way to describe it one more time you go north east south west you will generate an incomplete square you will fall short and indeed the further you go the further the further your parameters are um if you go a thousand miles north and a thousand miles east and a thousand miles south and a thousand miles west greater will be the distance between your start point and end point that's just how that goes and it was a kind of a frivolous question i threw out there that i remember the answer to but i kind of completely forgot the the, uh, the the workings behind it you know and it's only when I kind of started talking about it the last recording I did of this episode I kind of flown muxed myself I, I kind of I was chatting away yeah yeah grand then boom uh, you know how, how do I describe this properly that I'm happy with so um, the further north and south you go the more constrained longitudinal measurements become but the nautical mile has to remain constant or else you're in trouble you know so a nautical mile one more time is when you're at 45 degrees north or south and you measure one minute of a degree that's one nautical mile which is 1.15 so that's mercator's projection in a very very quick uh maybe overly oversimplified manner uh and like to say that in the past when they were just using these uh, british admiralty charts or well you know Back then, it wasn't BA. It's BA today. But if you're when you're when they're using these nautical charts, um, the thing you'd have to measure distances is a thing called a divider. As you'd see it a lot in Master and Commander and these type of old uh, kind of uh, you know man of war galleon movies, which I really love. What's the other? What's the, it's not Shoehorn. It's some other guy. I can't remember. It was like some top tip. British ensign fighting on the top seas and all this and all that and very very top who and it actually wasn't a bad. Blow horn was I can't remember something horn anyway I'm probably completely wrong just horny maybe but <laughs> but um, yeah so a divider is essentially is like a compass uh, not a 
magnetic compass and all the compass that you'd use to prescribe a circle, except uh, there's just two spikes. Instead of one being a spike and one being lead or a pencil, it's uh, two spikes. And generally speaking, it's far bigger than the mathematical compass that you'd find in that little set. But if you're having, if you're ever have done technical graphics or, you know, architecture or whatever else, you know yourself, the compasses get far, far bigger. And that you're, you're, you're coming into the territory then of a divider. So generally about four, five, six inches long, maybe. No, six inches is probably a bit too big. But three to five inches, generally speaking. And um, so, and, and the trick is this, right? If you want to measure distances, you go to your line of latitude because they're constant. The longitude gets tighter the further north and south you go, but the latitude stays the same because they're all horizontal, they're equally equidistant. And um, they're, but the lines of latitude grow wider. The distance between, on the physical chart now, on the map, the distance between each minute is marked by, let's say, a line, and the further you zoom in, the further you change your scale, you go down to, you know, uh, minutes to seconds and whatnot. But if it's just kind of a general chart, you'll see that generally it's minutes that uh, are kind of stepped off an incremental pace. And if you're looking at the chart, and as well as that chart, the map you'll see in Eason's with the Russia that's so, so big that takes up nearly half the half the thing that will shrink down to, to Africa. If you look at the lines... <clears throat> On the left and right, uh, which are the lines denoting latitude, you'll see that they'll get more and more and more spaced out, even though they're technically, well, okay, I said they're equidistant. They appear equidistant, but they're not actually. They, the, the mathematical formula that Mercator generated sees them getting more and more and more wide, further apart the further south, north and south you go. And then all you have to do is take your dividers, measure it against the side of the chart, which, you know, uh, will give you your nautical mile, and then you'll see them kind of stepping it off along this line, you know, they'll they'll start at one point and they'll swing it this way and then they'll swing it another way and swing it <coughs> and they'll step along the line. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, Red October, I think, you'll see Sean Connery do it. He's a, uh, or whatever, I think it was Red October he was in. Oh, yeah, Sean Connery died recently, 90 years old. God bless him. Oh, you'll be missed, Sean. Great, great, great actor. Very, really, really fond of him. But um, anyway, that's what a dividers is, and that's what they're doing. They're they're checking the the their their transit line against the lines of latitude, and um, which are you know, as well I said, not equidistant. They they they, they grow they, they grow further apart the further north, and so you go to compensate for Mercator's projection, which sounds very very complicated, and it is I suppose maybe just hearing about it and talking about it verbally, it is a bit complicated. But once you get the hang of it, it's actually a very very ingenious uh, method. That um, I, I can tell you, many many a mariner has nodded nodded his head in appreciation to how simple and rather ingenious that process is. So Mercator, <clears throat> I'd highly recommend you reading up more about him. Uh, interesting guy, but I'm already now twenty six minutes in, and I'm kind of liking the forty. 40 odd minute mark kind of uh, podcast the the hour is pretty cool it was I know but I I, I don't know maybe the, the I, I think maybe the 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 40 minutes is kind of maybe a, a handier one <clears throat> sorry I have an awful frog in my throat I, do you know what I'm going to do I'm going to use my water bottle again it's very, rather neat I only got it a few days ago so the novelty still hasn't worn off so one sec <coughs> oh god I love water <coughs> oh yeah Oh, that's some good throat clearing right there. Oh, you can instantaneously hear that my voice is far more clearer. It's like a new man. Fuck it, I love water. So, the second man I want to talk about 
is a guy called Samuel Plimsoll. And I don't know if you've heard of him before. I'd be surprised if you have. But um, don't worry if you haven't. He uh, he was an English fella. He was born in Bristol. Oh, hitting the microphone again, sorry. Born in Bristol in 1824. And he died uh, in 1898. So a good old, a good old shot of life. <laughs> and uh, I've been to Bristol. I actually kind of like it. I know people give out about it and stuff, but I like Bristol. But uh, he was, um, he was like, he was an he's an English politician, I suppose, and a social reformer, and that, that, that's what he's best known for. Uh, he was, uh, you know, he took went to school in Cumberland or some shit like that, and he left school at an early age, and uh, he became a clerk or a scribe for uh, for I think it was a, a brewery or something. Anyway, it doesn't really matter. But um, he wanted to become a merchant, and I think. Coal was his was his main one, and uh, but that kind of flopped, and he was broke, and he was flat out broke. And one, I remember reading on his wiki uh, that he said that this was one of the the parts in his life that really kind of made him appreciate the hard life of the poor working man because he had to stay in this inn that he was living on seven shillings and threepence or something nonsense like that, and that was very very poor for him and you know he got a deeper appreciation for the poverty and this type of stuff and look okay fair enough good on you uh, Plimsoll uh, savage chops great beard lazy eye but I'm no man to complain about the lazy eye as long as you <laughs> not at all he, you know but uh, he um, he was interested in human rights and this is the cool thing I'm always interested in people who are interested in human rights and uh, he kind of became a politician. I can't remember at what stage it was. No, it was a little bit after. You know, he's probably in his 30s or something like that. Uh, 60s, maybe. Yeah, I have it written down here. 1867. He became a Liberal member of the Parliament for Derby. Well, there you go now. And so his main thing was he was concerned about was uh, ships, which is why I found out about him in college. Our lecturers often talk about him rather fondly when we're talking about ship stability, which is something I mentioned the last day. Uh, he's a very, very he's a very, very fundamental part in ship stability. And what was happening was around this time, uh, I can't remember when exactly, but it wasn't so long after or so long before uh, 67 that uh, ship insurance, shipping insurance became a thing. And uh, whenever a new thing comes in, society has to adjust and calibrate itself uh, there's always opportunists that are going to see every single angle and can abuse a new bit of legislation and whatnot. And what was happening was these scurrilous ship owners were getting their oldest, most banjaxed ships and they were loading them up to the nines, absolutely loading them down to the water was nearly lipping over the edge of the ship and sending them out in really tough weather. And the idea was that if the ship made it to its destination overburdened as it was, then jackpot. You know, the ship owner and cargo owner are delighted. But if the ship sank, well, then the insurance companies would have to cough up. So they actually, they were actually making a profit out of ships sinking and, you know, sailors dying. And at the time, it was a very, very brutal time to be a sailor. The... Um, thing was like you know you could say oh well you could be a captain or a, a rating or whatever and looked at a ship that's been drastically overloaded and saying hey, I'm not going on that motherfucker that's going to sink and uh, well 
at the times things were so brutal that you know uh, your seafarer's discharge book could be stamped in such a way that you will never get a job again that a guy hiring crew if you refuse to go on or whatever else uh, would say oh you'll never work in my town again and they'd be right because that was the 1800s and things were far more brutal and so people were nearly forced to go on these ships. They were forced. If you wanted to have a career as a seafarer and someone said to you, if you don't get on this ship, you'll never work again. Well, then you're going to have to reconsider your career or get on the ship. And to make things even worse, there was, uh, oh, excuse me, there's the water and the fried egg and the toast. Mm, yummy. On the occasion. And to make things even worse, uh, if if... There was no safety of life at sea. There was no international maritime regulation to say that you had to pick up the survivors of a disaster or at sea or a ship sank. Uh, and the the logic nearly was that um, the if you saved those guys, if you picked those guys up out of the water, you're actually saving the competition. The less sailors there were, the more sailors were getting paid, you see. So, as I said, very, very brutal. Uh, and uh, so Plimsoll was looking at this and he was saying, Jeannie, that's that, that's just fucking wretched. Like, and it was rather wretched. I mean, the, I think the, the worst one, I got this from a little podcast I listened to ages ago. I think it's called 99% Invisible. I'd recommend it. They have loads of them. Uh, I've only listened to the Plimsoll one, but I was very happy with the format. Seven minutes long, just this guy belting out a few things about little miniature things in history and uh, on it he was discussing the SS London which set sail from Gravesend so that's how <laughs> familiar people were with this uh, phenomena it's called coffin ships I, and as an Irish person I always correlated the word term coffin ships to those going across transatlantic to America full of famine victims And but no the term uh, coffin ships I think was first coined from ships that were old banjaxed and being sent off overladen and under maintained and uh, yeah so the SS London set sail from Gravesend to Melbourne in UK to the Australia which is a big 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 trip and had all these uh, steel um, girders or whatever you'd call them for railways so valuable cargo very heavy and uh, I can't remember where exactly she sank but she hit, hit some heavy weather and she came about to try to make a port of refuge to get out of it and she 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 sank 260 people died in it I think uh, I can't remember when it was exactly I think it was the 1850s maybe but like there was a huge 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 loss of life and there was uproar rightly there was uproar over it uh, but um, Plimsoll you know got up on his high horse rightly so in this case I believe and as a politician a liberal politician <gasps> libtard <laughs> but he started giving out to the lads saying this is absolutely scurrilous and there was a big giving out and he called some guys villainous uh, because some British MPs happened to be ship owners British politicians owning ships and sending them off and letting them sink some things haven't changed they're probably fucking Tories but anyway oh, probably we shouldn't say that but anyway um so off, so off he went, and but he he went off and one and gave out a load of lads and called them villainous. Now I'm going to tell you a trick about villains. If you call a villain villainous, they'll get very very angry. That's how you spot one. 
It's the same if you call a, a scumbag a scumbag. They get very, very angry. They just lose the plot. I'm not a scumbag. You're a scumbag. Fuck you. So if someone calls you a scumbag and you're not a scumbag, you're like, no, I'm not. Uh, well, then congratulations. You're not a scumbag. But if you are a, a, a person engaged in such endeavors and someone calls you that, so automatically you have to project and explode. I'm not that. You're not that. And that's kind of what happened. And poor old Plimsoll kind of on politically, he was in this regard, he wasn't very uh, political he called a load of British MP ship owners villainous and they got very 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 upset and he had to do a lot of apologising and a lot of this that and the other and so what Plimsoll came up with was a thing called the load line it's called the load line today but back then it was called Plimsoll line and if I was to describe it next time you're down by the docks or down, next time you see it or even just look a picture of a ship you will see it it's right in the middle uh, between the forward and aftermost end, so the forward being the front and the aft being the back, uh, between the forward and aftermost end, right in the middle, you'll see a circle. Uh, it should be right around the waterline. Should be right around the waterline, and uh, it looks it's a, it's a circle through its uh, equatorial plane. There's a horizontal line that extends out past the uh, the edges of the circle. It looks a little bit like what you might think Saturn could look like if you were if you if you didn't see if you were looking bang on at the rings and everything like that so you didn't see rings you just saw a horizontal line that's what it looks like and the idea was that you're not load load past this line uh, that uh, some guy came along and figured out the safe draft uh, for a vessel and if you loaded past this line then the ship was unsafe to sail now this came into force and lads didn't like it obviously no there was a whole process again i'm coming up in 36 minutes now so again if you look into it yourself there is there's a little bit there it's it's a little bit scant uh but essentially what some guys did and i remember this is a thing my lecturer told me ages ago what some of these scurrilous ship owners did was they put their plimsoll line halfway up the mast so <laughs> which is no good uh, a ship has to be well well sunk to get the water up past its mast and then that would you know, so they were basically saying that you can load up to here which was just basic it knocked the whole point of a load line out of the water so to speak uh, but he fought for it and fought for it and fought for it and eventually the industry kind of came into line and of course the insurance the insurance companies uh, had a vested interest in it and they kind of helped uh, make this come and I can't exactly can't exactly remember when it came into force but you know it was the 1800s coming into the 1900s it took a while for things to settle down and um so what else, like, you know, so good on Plimsoll, I suppose. And he was a fairly popular guy with the people. Uh, they're like, the, he was well-renowned. He was called, he even wrote a book. And it's an unfortunately named book. It hasn't aged well. But it was a book called Or Seaman. And, <laughs> you know, it, it hasn't aged well. Like, I know, I'll give it that. But, like, you know, th this book was very, very, very popular. And people were reading, up, reading a lot about the plight of the seafarer, which is great, I mean. Um, and a lot of Plimsoll's work went uh, towards the generation of the Merchant Shipping Act, which started, started the ball rolling for safety standards and whatnot. And uh, so, as I said, the initially you weren't load past this this line plimsoll's line uh now as we went forward lads started contesting that quite rightly 
because they were saying, look, under different circumstances, is that we can you can actually you can actually load far deeper, and they were right. Uh, you know, you want to get uh, the most you want onto the onto the ship. You want to get the most cargo you can possibly can because time's money, and you know you want to squeeze every single thing onto it safely, of course, eventually. So, and they were quite right to argue the point. And what you have then is, um, so you got, you, so you you went from plimpsons line to load lines. So next time you're looking at a ship. Have a walk up. Next time you see a ship down in the harbour or whatever, and it's up up against the key wall, have a walk up and down along it. They won't mind, you know, just as long as you don't try to board or anything. Security will only come after you. But, um, at the watchman. But what you'll see is at the forward end and the aft end and the mid center, or sometimes in the mid, but always in the fore and aft, you'll see draft marks. And what draft marks are is they're um, just to indicate how deep the vessel is in the water. And the today now I'm not this was less so in the past but today this is measured in meters it used to be feet and inches probably but today it's all meters pretty much and uh, you will see like a four meter and then you'll see 420 and 440 and each line is 10 centimeters thick and the space between each line is 10 centimeters wide so what this means is you can actually get a fairly good guesstimate as to how deep your vessel has been loaded uh, how deep your vessel is in still water if it's a bit choppy you have to kind of make a guess at the peak and the trough how the, the maximum lowest reading just by eye now and make a guess as to what your draft is but that's uh the, 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 that's just a, a thing of note the load lines what you'll see now is nearly a bit like um it looks nearly a bit like ohm uh, a less populated ohm line so there's a vertical line with the horizontal branches coming off left and right of it and what this is about is it's an indicator as to how much more a ship can load or how much less a ship can load past or before the plimsoll line so it's right next to the plimsoll line so you have the circle with the line through it uh, then you'll have this kind of ohm branched uh, design either for i think it's aft of it yeah aft of it and um, you'll have stuff like, you'll see these small letters like TF and F and T and S and W. And so the idea is F means fresh water and S means salt water. And S, S just a straight S, will be the same line as Plimsoll's line. So if a ship's sailing off into salt water, this is the maximum it can load in a regular condition. Now, if you're loading in fresh water, as it turns out, as you all know, uh, salt water is far more dense than fresh water so if you you can load deeper this sorry, salt salt water is more dense than fresh water so you can load more in fresh water you can sink the ship a little bit more with cargo in fresh water because when you go out into the salt water the ship will rise up on the denser water and so you will you will meet Plimsoll's line even though you've loaded deeper in the fresh water. You also have tropical fresh and tropical, which is the tea. If you're in tropical waters, generally speaking, the weather is far nicer. I know you get tropical storms. These are but these are freak occurrences. Generally speaking, you're going to have a much finer day sailing in tropical areas. So uh, they, you're allowed to load a bit deeper. In uh, winter, then, you're allowed to load less, load less than Plimsoll's line because you want to increase your draft and have you, your air draft, rather. So what your air draft is, is your distance between the top of the water and the and your deck, essentially. You're, um, uh, oh, excuse me, I'm very gaseous today. 
so obviously in winter you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to allow a little bit more space to save the seas coming you know washing across your deck and whatnot like that uh what also affects this oh is there any other ones tropical fresh uh, da, da. anyway yeah the, the, there there is some other ones but uh, again oh yeah winter north atlantic is an interesting one uh, wna um you're allowed to look this is the max this is the the the, lo- the, the lowest line below the plimsoll uh, what this means is in in the North Atlantic during winter time, it's particularly horrendous, very very heavy weather. So they give you an extra little few inches just to kind of get you out of the water a bit more to save the save the seas crashing over you. But <coughs> then today's day and age with the oil tankers, you're actually the, the, this plimsoll line comes up quite a bit, um, and the reason for this is that oil tankers are very very sealed units. You know they're very very tightly sealed. Now they hatch they have hatch covers. Um, the reason why you want to ship out of the water a bit is because you have these big open hatch covers and if a sea lifts a hatch cover a bit and breaks some of the securings and water can get in, you're, you're in trouble, you see. But with oil tankers, it's a far more tightly uh, sealed off unit and you can you can load her a bit more deep into the water. Timber ships as well, you can load deeper because um, timber is on deck is kind of generally lashed and tied together into a very, very tightly packed uh uh, unit and if your cargo holds are full of timber as well, well that's adding an awful lot of extra buoyancy and whatnot no you also have to consider as well to not to get too bogged down but when you're loading timber it can absorb uh, 10 to 15 percent its weight and moisture and that can affect your stability especially if it's up high which i mentioned before ice accretion and whatever but uh so you know I, I that's their load lines and it's very very interesting it came from this guy plimsoll and uh i, I i'm sure some of you know the name plimsoll from the shoe Plimsoll shoes and uh, no he didn't start his own shoe design but what happened was around the same time a new type of shoe came out and that was with a, a canvas top dipped into rubber uh, so a canvas top with a rubber sole and uh, this came out around the same time and the straight line of rubber along the canvas reminded people of the straight line that the of the plimsoll line and um, that's why they were called plimsoll shoes so it's nothing to do with the man making the shoes it's just when the type of shoe came out that line reminded people of uh of of plimsoll's line and so look yeah lads i think where am i now 44 minutes that's not a bad time um thanks very much for joining me plimsoll and Mercator, two two very interesting people that had a very very large effect on uh uh, on the maritime world that I thought I'd talk about a little bit about today and sure look I hope I uh, have inspired you to do a little bit of your own research maybe I got things terribly wrong I don't think I did <laughs> but sure look in that case guys I hope you had a great weekend and uh, let's fingers crossed everything turns out okay in America um, I don't think there's any Americans listening to me but uh, I'm sure everyone is keeping a close eye and we hope things go nice and peacefully and everything is nice and chill and you know yourself Guys, thanks very much for listening. I'll talk to you later. Bye.